Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? When I was trying to get this podcast off the ground, I had a lot of questions. How do I record an episode? How do I get my show into all the apps people like to listen? How do I make money from my podcast? The answer to every one of these questions is really simple. Anchor. Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing your podcast. And best of all, it's 100% free and ridiculously easy to use. And now, Anchor can even match you with great sponsors who want to advertise on your podcast. That means you can get paid to podcast right away. In fact, that's what I'm doing right now by reading this ad. And when I tell you it is simple, it is really simple. You just record your podcast on Anchor, load it up, hit publish, and voila. So if you've always wanted to start a podcast and make money doing it, go to anchor.fm slash start. Once again, that's anchor.fm slash start to join me and the diverse community of podcasters already using Anchor. That's anchor.fm slash start. I can't wait to hear your podcast. Hi, my name is Jamie Talisar, and you are listening to Raise Your Voice, a podcast where we talk about everything from race, religion, diversity, social justice, and even hip-hop culture. My guest today is a scholar and an advocate who's not afraid to speak truth to power, Dr. Courtney Ray. Courtney, welcome, and thank you for being my first guest on Raise Your Voice. Thank you for having me, Jamie. I am honored to be the first guest. I didn't realize when you asked me that I was, but I am definitely honored. I'm glad to be here. and um, I know that the podcast is going to be great because you're doing it, and God's blessing you. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. So tell, tell me a little bit about yourself. Um, well, like you, <laughs> I grew up in New York and, um, actually I moved back to the New York area recently, but I have traveled around the world and lived in different cities across the country as well. Um, my first vocation is pastoral ministry and I've pastored in Michigan and Maryland and different conferences in California, and I am an ordained minister of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Um, My second vocation is um, psychology, so I have a PhD in clinical neuropsychology and neuroscience, and so I do neuropsychological assessments for different individuals um, across the lifespan. So I do children and assess people who have um, neurodiversity that's different from, so basically their mind works a little bit differently than what we would call neurotypical people. Um, I assess people who have neurodegenerative diseases or neurological um, difficulties in terms of learning, um, intelligence, difficulties, forensic stuff. So a a big mix, a big pot. And I also teach as well. I teach psychology um, at a few of the local universities here in the New York City area. So yeah, it's a lot. 
Um, I don't know if there's anything else specific that you wanted to ask what I did, but uh, that's basically my professional life in a nutshell. No, wow, that that is a lot. That's more than I uh, than I knew that you did. But I'm so glad that you do all that. So, help me understand why did you go into like the neuro uh, psychological psychological part? Um, and knowing that you went to Northeastern Academy, was that prior to you um, uh, thinking about becoming a pastor, or was that something that you always wanted to do and you did after? Well, it's. A- I I don't know if I can say that there's like a linear chronology in terms of the different things that I've wanted to do. Um, From the earliest age, I actually found like a journal of mine when I was younger and it said that I wanted to be a teacher and a writer and a doctor. And I was like, oh, look at that. I I do all of those things. (laughs) So it was like when I was in fourth grade or something, I wrote this. I was like, oh, all right, well, I guess I'm being true to what I wanted to do when I was younger. I forgot that I'd even written any of that. But um, when I was young, I do remember that I had always wanted to go into healthcare. Initially, I wanted to become a podiatrist. That was sort of my goal. Um, When I got to high school, one of the things that I noticed, even though we went to a Christian Academy, um, a lot of the kids who I went to school with, who we went to school with, had um, grown up in a Christian environment. They grew up in an Adventist environment, but even still, they didn't have their own personal relationship with God, which was really weird to me because even though I was Christian in the sense that, you know, Black people in general in the United States are usually some kind of a religious affiliation, I personally didn't have um, a very strong denominational background growing up in my household. And I became Adventist later on after I started attending Adventist schools. And so that was when I sort of developed a real relationship with Jesus Christ was, you know, when one of my friends who was a um, classmate of mine, um, Amanda Roberts, who you know as well, um, who, um, died a few years ago. Um, but when we were kids, she invited me to come to church with her and her family. And they would come, pick me up, take me to church. And I developed a love for God and spirituality and just knowing more about him. And when I went to academy and I met so many other kids who had already grown up in that environment and they didn't have that same connection because for them, it was their parents' religion and their parents' denomination. It really sort of hurt my feelings in a way. And I felt like, wow, where are the people who are really trying to reach young people, the folks who don't know how to have a relationship with God, whether they're young or old, who are the people who are doing that for them? And God said to me, listen, I want you to be the change that you want to see in the world, you know? And I said, "Uh, okay. Well, if that's what you want me to do, then I'll do it. And so I went to school for theology. There was only one person, and I remember, and I remember who it was, this classmate of mine in Northeastern, who said, oh, women can't be pastors. And I was like, what are you talking about? And I just thought that he was kind of crazy. And it wasn't until I got to college that I realized that in our denomination, there's this sort of struggle about um, gender 
equality and women being able to take leadership positions in some areas of the country. And so that really was challenging to me, but at the same time, God had told me to do something and I was going to do it, you know? Mm -hmm. And it was a struggle, I will say. Um, Sending out my resume was very interesting because um, I'm a hard worker. And so I made sure that I did a lot of things that were in ministry even before I graduated. My Bible work, evangelistic series, doing Bible studies. I wrote a set of Bible studies, two sets of Bible studies, actually. I mean, I did a lot of stuff. And I would get people, this is back in the day before, um, you know, we had video chats and video interviews and things like that. You would actually send a hard copy of your resume to places. And so I would do that and people would call me back. And I even have, I think, I, I believe that I kept the tape from the answer machine. This is saying how long ago this was. I had a tape in my answer machine. But um, a conference that called me back, they were actually like, oh, wow, you know, we really love your resume. Da 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 da. Call us back. And they were kind of very effusive in praise about the things that I had done. And when I called back, I remember the person saying, oh, you're a woman. She, just straight up, just not trying to sugarcoat it or anything like that. And they were like, we don't hire women. And I was like, oh, okay, thanks, thanks a lot. And that was the end of that. So it was really kind of hard to get into ministry. Um, I wound up um, taking a chance at doing a Bible work, working like as a, an, with an evangelist um, for Net 2004. Um, Walter Pearson had, was doing an evangelistic series at Miracle Temple in Baltimore. And so um, a friend of mine said, hey, I want you to come over and this is an opportunity for you to work here during this series and who knows what else that could lead to. And I'm like, hey, you know what? I'm not doing anything now. So after graduation, I packed up. I went to Baltimore. I did um, the work with Walter Pearson at NET 2004. It was a really successful meeting. And the pastor of the church, Freddie Russell, who was there, um, was in need of somebody else to come on the staff. He wanted a youth pastor. My other friend, um, Alex Royce, was already on the staff. And so he was like, hey, you know, she's a good worker. She's somebody that you want to have. And Freddie Russell was very open to having women in ministry. And that was how I kind of got into professional Adventist ministry, um, despite all the other things. So it was a workaround that only God could have set up in the first place. But unfortunately, there are still places where it's a real struggle. It's not as bad as it used to be because there are more conferences and more churches that are open to women in ministry, but there are still deep pockets of discrimination and a lot of resistance to it. So wow. That's probably a longer answer than no. <laughs> no, that's totally that's totally good because you said so much. So like my question, um so I've got a few questions, right? And oh, I guess like the trajectory. So you did the seminary, um I'm correct, right? Right, right, right. And so how long after your graduation from seminary did it take for you to get 
I guess, to get um, hired. Let's use that word, hired to get picked up by a conference. Um, so do you mean with, so working from the time that I was at Andrews, I graduated in 2003, in December of 2003, and I started working, um, with the evangelistic meeting, um, that next spring. So after the commencement graduation, mm-hmm. that next summer I worked in the evangelistic series and then later on after that that later that same year is when I started working at Miracle Temple so it wasn't as long as with some people some people you know they spend like years I mean this was I guess a total of you know 12 months altogether so it wasn't it definitely wasn't as as bad as many people who spend many years and even decades or maybe even never getting hired. But um, in terms of formal um, hiring by a conference itself, that wasn't until later on when I moved. um, And I think officially that was in 2007. So I guess three years after that. Um, was when I started working for the conference properly. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of what I'm alluding to because, you know, what's um, what's interesting is that for women in ministry, you all are held to the same standard that men are. I mean, your story is pretty much my story. I wasn't sponsored. Um, and, you know, um, I would <laughs> mail my resume out and on hard paper and work the crusades and everything, you know, that comes with trying to get hired. But my, I didn't have to go through what you went through. And I just think it's kind of interesting that uh, the church will hold women to the same standard as a man, but they won't give them the same access or same privileges that men would have. Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I think that it's it's very shameful on our part that we're willing to use women's gifts and use their talent and say, yes, we'll allow you to work, but we're not going to officially recognize that. We're not going to officially compensate that. Um, Paul says the laborer is worthy of wages. But we don't necessarily apply that when it comes to women who are doing the work of ministry. And even Ellen White talks about the fact that, which still happens today, um, back when she was alive, there were conferences who would have ministerial teams with a husband and a wife, and they saw that as a two-for-one, let's go ahead and pay one salary and get two people who are doing the work of ministry. And she was like, no, that's, that's not right. And she actually spoke out against the fact that they were using um, ministers' wives as pastors and using them as ministers and not compensating them properly. So even back at the very inception of our church, this is a problem. And it's only exacerbated since uh, Ellen White's death. We had many women, it's very interesting looking at the yearbook for the different pastors who were here in 
you know, bygone decades, there were many, many women who were ministers who had ministerial licenses during the time of Ellen White. And then after her death, you see this immediate drop in the number of women who were hired as formal pastors in conferences. And New York, this entire area actually owes a lot of the different churches that have been here historically and for the longest time from evangelistic efforts of women who were evangelists during the early 20th century, who it seems as if kind of have gotten lost to history, or at least to our denominational um, consciousness. Yeah, and that's, that's um, so let's, so let's probably like unpack the whole, um, the, let's, this whole idea or concept that women are treated, you know, less than, less than their male counterparts. Like, what do you think that comes from? Or, I mean, I know you have, I have an idea, but I just want to hear from you. Like, where do you, where do you think that comes from? And what is the root of that issue? Well, you know, I think that there's a lot of contributing factors. I don't think that it's a single factor. It's very interesting to me that for a denomination that holds one of the pioneers of our church, who is a woman in such high esteem that we have such low esteem for women in leadership today, And I think that even though a lot of people sort of accuse Adventists today who seek equality of being, you know, slaves to the culture and just desirous to be part of the social milieu and all this, you know, PC culture, I really believe that it's actually the other way around because Adventism in many ways, believe it or not, historically was kind of progressive in in a number of ways, Um, not only in terms of women in ministry and leadership, but also in diversity, the way that we um, allowed people who were not just white to actually be a part of shaping the culture of our young denomination. Um, There's a lot of people who were black individuals who had a say in our early church shaping, but then just like the attitudes towards women, we see that there are different mindsets of the people out in the world that sort of infiltrated the church in the middle of the uh, 20th century. So we saw individuals who um, previously would have been esteemed as leaders were excluded from leadership because of their gender and because of their race. And that wasn't something that the Adventist church had previously practiced, but that was how the United States was as a whole in the larger society during the 20th century. And so a lot of that creeped into Adventism. And in a lot of ways, we, our culture, our church culture adopted sort of the secular culture and absorbed a lot of the prejudices that were in that time and in that era. And so there was a whole lot of um, patriarchy that was a big deal in the early 20th century and even up until the 70s before, you know, the rise of first wave feminism. So we see a lot of those same sort of patriarchal attitudes coming into the church that hadn't been previously present. 
Um, and like I said, the same thing for um, attitudes with people who were not white. And so black people, Hispanic people, um, Native American people, we didn't necessarily have the same sorts of divisions within our church as other denominations did, and especially not like the world did. But for whatever reason, we began to adopt those same sorts of attitudes and we molded our culture to be sort of a mirror of the outside world. And I think we really fell away from the ways that we could have been unique and we could have been leaders in equality in all sorts of different avenues, you know, with sex and with, um, with racial identity. Great. Yeah. So like, so the Adventist Church in America, let's, let's just look at it in America, right? And we know that it's a worldwide denomination where in practically almost every country. And just focusing on America and this idea of diversity, uh, the Adventist Church would probably say, yes, we are very diverse. We have Latinos, Latinas, you know, we have uh, uh, Brazilians, uh, we have uh, Blacks. Caribbean, American, um, all sorts of people that are members of this great and wonderful church. Now, on paper, that sounds good, right? But do you actually think that our church is truly diverse and it's in its truest sense? Um, and I mean, and I'm just mean, Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, no. You mean like sort of an integrated diversity. And no, no, absolutely not. Mm -hmm. I think we all are in our different silos um, because of, you know, historical things that have happened in our church. We are divided just as much, and if not more than most of the other major denominations here in the United States. We, we have a lot of different people, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we all come together in any way. It's funny because I told you that I began my ministry on the East Coast and then I moved to the West Coast, but um, the East Coast has regional conferences, as you know, but the West Coast really doesn't. Um, and I think, I'm not sure where the boundary line is, where it stops being any regional conferences. Yeah, where hold, it's hold, hold your thought real quick. Let me just, for anybody who's listening who doesn't know what a regional conference is, that's basically a black conference. Like blacks are in regional conferences. All right, you can go right. continue. <laughs> right. Okay, no, 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 good, good for explaining that. So I don't really know where the boundary line going from east to west where that's uh, definitively, but, you know, growing up on the East Coast, there are always these uh, tales of the the integration of of the West and how out West there were no black conferences and white conferences and how everybody was all together and it's you know just one big melting pot and I was like wow that's really interesting I wonder how that works there and when I went to to actually move there and work there it's just as segregated I mean you can act as if it's not just because you have employees of different ethnicities within one conference, but that doesn't necessarily mean that um, they work together. I remember actually going to an alumni dinner at, for Andrews. So Andrews um, would come around and they still do go around the country and ask and invite alumni to come and they would have dinner or breakfast sometimes where 
They would just kind of give information about where the school is going and, you know, obviously to solicit donations and things like that. And because Andrews is where our Adventist Theological Seminary is in North America, every pastor who has a Master's of Divinity um, passes through Andrews. And so I would frequently meet other pastors at these alumni dinners and things like that. And I remember one time I was sitting in a meal and, you know, I'm just talking to the other people at my table. Oh, you know, when did you graduate? Where do you work? What are you doing? And, da, 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 da. and this one guy tells me, oh, you know, I, I'm a pastor. I was like, oh, really? Now, there are more than one um, conference. There's more than one conference in California. So I figured maybe he worked at one of the other conferences. And when he told me where he worked, I was like, wait, you're in my conference. And I had never seen this guy before. I don't know who he, I had no idea who he was. But we never did things together, even though we were all part of the same organization. We never had any interaction. We didn't have like any sorts of unity things. We had workers meeting twice a year, but you know, it's really, they're lecturing you about different things. You're not really um, mingling with people. You're not getting an opportunity to get to know the other people who are in your area. So there was really not a chance for the pastors to even know each other who are of different backgrounds. So of course the congregations weren't getting together. There was no kind of systematic opportunities for any integration, but we could boast that, yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't have regional conferences and state conferences. We are all together. But the reality is that there's not any sort of um, interaction between the different groups. We're just as segregated as any other um, conference, any place else in, in North America. And that's really a shame. And I feel like um, there are historical reasons why there are regional conferences and there's historical reasons why we are segregated. And I don't necessarily think that um, that people's ideas of just shattering the conference lines and, and state conferences and regional conferences will solve all our problems because even if you did that, people still congregate in their own churches and on the church local level, you are going to have people who gather with their own ethnic group and not... Um, mingle with other people outside of that unless you're intentional of saying hey let's build bridges and let's make sure that we're using this unique platform we have as a worldwide church as a very diverse and you know kind of inclusive church <laughs> for us to be able to get to know each other but we haven't taken advantage of that on a large scale really yeah so um Man, this is good. This is really good stuff. Thank you for uh, being so open and for sharing all of this. Uh, you've been, you said that you officially got hired in 2007, right? Mm-hmm. And it's 2019. So that's a span of about 12 years mm-hmm. in, in this work. Do you feel like you belong? Um, I guess, do you feel accepted as a woman? in a male-dominated uh, fraternity in some cases. Do you feel like you belong um, in this work? That's a really 
good question. Um, I think in some ways, yes. And in many ways, no. Like I said, Adventism is very good of having pockets of different places and different ideologies and different ethnicities and different philosophies. So if you, you chose to, you can spend your entire life within a bubble within the bubble. So Adventism itself is a bubble, right? Mm-hmm. And we have different factions. And you can, if you wanted to, find a faction that you're comfortable with, where everybody thinks like you do, and you will always feel, you know, accepted and like you belong because everybody who's within your sphere feels like you feel. So, you know, I have a lot of friends who are ministers and who think the same way I do and have ideas about inclusiveness that are... um, that embrace not only ethnic diversity, but gender diversity. And so within that sphere, yeah, I totally belong. But when I have these opportunities to, to communicate with other pastors who live outside of my own bubble, so social media is very interesting in that you have the chance to see into people's ideas and their mindsets that you probably would never talk to in real life. But when I talk to many of them, I'm like, oh, you know, this idea still abounds outside of my bubble that women are not equal, that women are not um, able to be leaders and it's heretical. And so there are places where it's not accepted. So in the larger scale, like if we're talking about just on a whole, yeah, I still feel excluded if we're talking about the larger environment of the world church. Um, because even in congregations, not just colleagues, but even in congregations, I'll go someplace and I'll preach and it's funny because people will come. I don't know if they feel like they're doing and giving me a compliment or something. And they're like, oh, you know, you're, you're not what I imagined a, a woman preacher would be like. And I'm like, what, <laughs> what is that supposed to be? <laughs> like, right. what, you know, like there's there's a lot of unpack to unpack there, but you know I could go into that, but that's a whole other tangent, you know. But yeah. I'm just saying, you know, there are lots of places where, you know, I'm glad that I get a chance to go outside of my sphere of influence and to be in different places and to travel and to also talk on social media with people who think differently because it reminds me that what. I might enjoy as a privilege is not something that everybody else enjoys. Um, I told you before that I was ordained because in the Pacific Union, and so in California where I work in other um, places in the West Coast, they do um, ordain women. And the Columbia Union Conference also does here in North America. But around the rest of the country, that's not the case. And so women in California and women who are in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area, you know, they can enjoy the privileges of saying, yeah, we're kind of a part of this um, of being recognized. And, you know, we have and I and I use the word club intentionally because in many ways um, it's sad, but it operates as if 
there is a club mentality instead of this collegiality of workers for God, which is really sad that that, that is sort of the, the mentality as a whole where we can keep certain people out and we let certain people in and we are the gatekeepers of who can be leaders for God and who can work for God and who can minister for God and who will be able to, to speak in, in terms of evangelism and things like that. And so um, even though in those areas, you know, those two conferences or two unions, there are women who are able to, to be a part of that and not feel excluded all around the rest of the country. Women have to struggle every day. And I really do appreciate the opportunity to understand that privilege and know that, you know, we have to be willing to, to work for justice for everybody, not just for, you know, a certain few, a select few. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Who do you, who do you find you get your most pushback from in regards to uh, uh, being a woman in, in the Adventist church uh, as a leader doing ministry? Like what group uh, pushes, (laughs) what group do you feel the the most uh, (laughs) resistance? That's the word I'm looking for. Resistance. Now you you want to get me in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Look, this is raise your voice, so this is your opportunity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna make sure you keep your job. You won't lose it. No, no, well, no. You know, I don't really. I, the thing is that I think that every group, every demographic, has individuals within it who you would say are more progressive, and people who are more conservative. Mm-hmm. And I think that applies whether we're talking about um, people who are white, people who are Hispanic, people who are black, um, whether we're talking about women, older women, younger women. I mean, I think every group has um, has pockets within itself. So a bubble in the bubble in the bubble, right? right. So I, it's, in terms of resistance, I can't say it's any one demographic, but I can say um, the more conservative you are, the more likely you have a disposition to push back against women in ministry. It doesn't necessarily hold true for everyone because I have some very conservative friends who are, um, who do embrace women in ministry, but there are many others who, because of their conservative leanings, and when I use the word conservative, I don't necessarily mean theologically conservative because I think Adventism in and of itself is a theologically conservative denomination. So I think everybody within in the denomination, if you're Adventist, you are conservative just by default, um, even though we would not necessarily say that because within Adventism, we have people who are, you know, to one extreme or the other. So if you are someone who is very much of the mindset that, um, the the word of God is literal word for word inspired, or if you're somebody who um, subscribes to a lot of conservative ideologies, even outside of the religious realm. So people who tend to be a little bit more politically conservative as well, I find that there is a tendency, and like I said, it's not necessarily everybody, there's a tendency for those individuals to be um, less likely to be accepting of women in ministry. Um, I think older people 
um, are they're mixed bag, but I think that that if you're looking at a split between older and younger, I think people who are younger are more apt to embrace um, equality and egalitarian leadership. Whereas I think if you're older, you have grown up in a generation where perhaps gender roles were much more constrained. And so it's difficult to see women in leadership in ways that don't jive with the way that you were raised. So, um, so you do see that a little bit with, with the older demographic. But I also, like I said, there's many, many people who, you know, subvert that trope where there's a lot of um, older people who are, you know, champions for equality. There are women who are older who've been waiting their turn, you know, patiently. And there are women who are older who were trailblazers who made it easy for me, you know. So mm-hmm. so it's not necessarily a 100% guarantee like, oh, you're older, that you're going to be the one who's going to give me the, the most hassle. But it's just that um, I think there are greater numbers of younger people who are more open to just allowing women in, to, to be part of the leadership without it being questioned or challenged as much. Yeah. What, what do you think, uh, what do you think the church needs to do in order to move towards equality? Uh, this fairness across the board where no matter wh- who you are or what gender that you're treated equally, uh, you're treated the same and you feel like you belong. Like what steps do you believe that we need to take in order to get to that place, if we can. Mm. Well, you know, I think that it there are multiple angles that it has to come from if we're going to be intentional about it. First of all, I think that administration needs to really be serious about hiring women in ministry. And when I was in seminary, there were many, many women who were in in my classes and who sought out pastoral work. And for whatever reason, they were able to, to become a part of that. And that's really sad because there are people who are talented, who are ethical, who uh, understand the word of God, who rightly divide the word of truth, who wind up just never getting an opportunity. They never get a chance. And I think that that really is disappointing because our conferences need to say, okay, we're going to push for women to be a part of this conference and we're going to hire them and we're going to allow them to lead out in churches. And, you know, if you don't want a a woman to be your pastor, you can move to a different church or a different conference because there's lots of different conferences. But we're going to be committed to saying we want women to be here. We also need to be committed to saying we want women to be ordained and to be um, recognized equally for not only the fact that they're pastors, but that they're able to speak on behalf of the church. Because that really is what ordination is. It's not anything magical or special because God already has ordained and called people, regardless of whether or not the church has ever officially recognized that. But the whole uh, thing about ordination professionally is that it's a professional distinction that allows you to do certain things that you can't do if you're not ordained. And so I think allowing women to have that same professional distinction is important. And I think it's also important for 
if not just the administration, but other clergy like you, like, you know, our other male colleagues to really be intentional about having women come and preach and allowing people to see that, yeah, women in ministry are not scary, (laughs) you know, that they are pastors who preach real truth and they're not about to, you know, they're not about subverting and turning everything in our church, you know, taking everything down and dismantling it the way that will, you know, drive everybody out. You know, that there's all these ideas about what women want to do in leadership. It's just like, I just want to preach the word of God. You know, it's not, mm-hmm. I'm not trying to, you know, hurt you or, or displace you. You know, and I think a lot of men especially kind of fear that. They fear like, oh, you know, they're trying to usurp our positions. You know, there's so much room. There's so much room for everybody. Nobody's afraid, you know. And so I think that men like yourself, you know, if you have a church, invite women to come and preach. And not just a women's ministry day. You know, have to come and preach on a regular Sabbath. Not just went not during Women's Ministry Month or Women's Month, which is uh, you know, in March, and not just for breast cancer awareness, and also having women who are pastors, and that's really important because not to say that lay preachers can't preach, but a lot of times I, you and I both know that there's a difference between. Um, if you are ministerial is trained and if you are just a lay person who preaches and, and you can preach well, there is a, a slight difference in the, in the way that you come about things. And I think that when you only have heard people who are maybe the health ministries leader or the women's ministry leader or the education leader come and they preach a sermon and that's great because they're a woman, you think that that's how women pastors are. And that's not necessarily the case because they are lay people whose ministries are very important and who preach a good message and and preach timely messages. But it's different than what you would get from somebody who's professionally trained. And I think giving women who are professionally trained the opportunity to preach and be exposed to or have those congregations be exposed to her, that's really, really important to changing the mindset and changing attitudes. Yeah, all, all of those things. Yeah, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with everything you said. I, I think that um, for me as a male, I think we have created this false narrative about women, similarly to a false narrative that's about black people, that, you know, women aren't qualified, as you stated before, for leadership. And it's up to us to, like, really reverse that narrative. I, I remember one time hearing this pastor preach, and I don't know if it was at Evangelism Council or I just remember specifically what was said. And I'm sure you've probably even heard this too. And the pastor got up and said, if God can use a donkey, then he can surely use a woman. And <laughs> I'm like, I have heard that. <laughs> I, dude, like, first of all, <laughs> yo, why are we, why are we comparing women, women to donkeys? donkeys. <laughs> And using that to just, so it's that kind of, um, it's that kind of rhetoric that feeds into the brains of those listening because, you know, people still listen to pastors. They still trust what pastors say and they still go by it. So you put that out there 
you know, it just sets <laughs> everything. It sets the bar low. Yeah, yeah, it sets the bar low. It sets everything backwards. So I think us as males really need education in regards to what you brought up, the diversity and what that truly means and inclusion and making all people belong and to not continue to support workplace, workplace exploitation where that we hold you to the same uh, standards that we hold the men to. And thankfully you are ordained and that we still have conferences that are still commissioning um, women. And, you know, we, yeah. The one thing that I was going to say was I, I, I don't think that we hold women to the same standards as men. I think we hold women to a higher standard than men, to Mm. be really honest. Mm -hmm. I think in many of the times, and you've probably heard this before, I know you have, where, um, you know, black people have to be twice as good in order to, um, to get the same recognition as a white person, you know, and it's very much the same for women. I mean, you have to be an extraordinary woman in order to match a mediocre man, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, and, I, and I'm not, and I'm not necessarily, I'm not necessarily calling out men for being mediocre, but we know that there are some who are like, just like there are, there are individuals of every demographic who don't necessarily do everything they're supposed to do. There are some guys who are kind of like, you know, let's be honest. <laughs> they're kind of, kind of chilling. They're, they're surfing on the, their ministerial laurels here and you know they still have they still have calls if they left ministry today and then they said you know what i want to get back in it they could get a call like tomorrow and and you have women who are really out there hustling and doing things that they're supposed to do and it's just kind of like ah you know whatever it is what it is and it's like man what what do women really have to do in order to let you know that we're serious about the work of God and really, you know, women, not to say that we're 100% virtuous, because I know some women who are, who are scandalous, just like there are guys who are scandalous, but, mm-hmm. you know, for the most part, we're, we kind of, as a whole, try to strive to, like, be scandal free so that there's not a another excuse like oh well you see that you see this is the reason why we can't hire them because xyz i remember like there was a highly public case a few years ago of a woman in ministry who you know had an issue with one of her um male colleagues they had an affair and it was a big thing and like it was the air sucked out of the mm-hmm. collective women's clergy community. It was just like, why? Why would you do this to us? Because, you know, the narrative was, oh, you see, this is why we can't hire them because they're, they're just going to cause these problems. And, da, 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 da. and I'm like, dude, there are hundreds of guys that I could point to from my childhood on who have had, you know, moral falls and it's like, oh, it's okay. We'll just put you back in or, you know, whatever. And it's not necessarily this huge thing. You don't condemn everybody, but it's like one woman or a few women have had issues and it's like, this is the reason why we can't, we can't have them. You know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, when you're black and you hear some, you know, somebody 
was it shooting up a place or something like that. You're like, Lord Jesus, I hope that it yeah. wasn't more than one of us. Yeah, yeah, totally. I remember, uh, you know, with the uh, the DC sniper shooting with Malvo. Yeah, yeah we were oh, we were sitting there like, I know there ain't no black person that can't be. Yeah. Man, when we saw them come out, we were like, oh, man, that's messing up everybody. But, you know, and, and, how, and what you said is so true. It's like, I don't understand if there's any group um, that I believe that should understand at least part of the plight or most of the plight that women face in ministry should be blacks. And, it, it, you know, and, it, and we should be the ones at least, I believe, on the front lines advocating for equality and fairness, because it's 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 like this uh this this thing is like the oppressed finds another group to oppress, right? Yeah. Um, and and it's and it's sad that our women um, who go through so much, who also put themselves behind men to push us to get to the place where we need to be. Like I can imagine um, how many women perhaps were turned away from doing ministry who started out wanting to be a pastor, but were turned away because of how hard it was to just break oh, yeah. that, that red tape. And they're doing other professions right now, or they're Absolutely. just Bible workers, you know, things yeah. like that, because men would just yeah. tell them you're not fit for leadership. <laughs> like, right. you know, so insane. So yeah, we got, we got work to do, but, um, I'm glad that you are raising your voice and you know you're you're putting it out there and hopefully us males and and women because I know uh, we can't forget about there are women that push against women in ministry. That is true. That is true. And what is you know what is our responsibility as women who have been through everything? We need to also mentor other women and help them. Um, sometimes, just like you said, people who feel that they've been oppressed um, sometimes want to oppress others. Sometimes even, it's very sad, the women who are in leadership positions um, don't want to help other women, maybe because they've had a struggle themselves, and they're like, well, I have to struggle, you're going to have to struggle too. And it's not necessarily a widespread attitude, but there is, it exists, and I'm not going to lie about that. And we need to be intentional with saying, okay, we need to help other women who are coming after us to to come and be a part of leadership and make it easier for them. Because like I said, there's room enough for everybody. Nobody has to feel threatened. There's so many people in the world who have not heard Jesus Christ. You know, there's enough room for everybody to have a place in ministry to reach and teach and preach. So, you know, nobody should feel like they're going to be displaced just because we help others. Absolutely. Absolutely. Any final words or final thoughts that you want to say to the public uh, before we sign off? (laughs) Well, I mean, I just I just want to say that I think everybody has a role to play in helping to mentor other people, um, whether or not you are in ministry professionally, you have the opportunity to help somebody else. You have a chance to be a blessing to someone and to really help them achieve the dreams and goals that they have. So, you know, whatever your vocation is, look at it not as a career, but as a calling and help somebody else achieve their calling too. 
Um, oh, and also, if you are in the uh, New York City metropolitan area and you are looking for psychological assessment services, you can find my website at www.apamind.com, A-P-A-M-I-N-D.com, so Array Psychological Assessment, so yeah. All right. Dr. Ray, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to hang out uh, with little old me and for, school, <laughs> and for schooling us. And thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for your courage and your bravery. And we're going to continue to pray for you and your success as you continue to, um, to lift up Jesus and his, his true, uh, true message and where he wants all of us to be. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Words can express how appreciative I am of you and what you're doing and your friendship. Well, it was my pleasure. And I know that the podcast is going to be a success despite your your first guest probably not being the best guest. <laughs> no way. There's going to be great, great things to come. And I'm looking forward to listening not only to this one, but many other episodes in the future. All right. Thank you so much. All right. All right. Thanks for having me. As we try to become a better place for humanity, some companies and organizations are spending countless amount of dollars to ensure that diversity and inclusion is the top priority for them. These organizations, diversity looks great on paper, or even looks better on a photo. And we love to see pictures of blacks, whites, and Asians in one room smiling and sitting next to each other. And these are the photos that we use to market our brand and to even push our ideologies. You'll see this all the time when you go on some church websites that they will pull a stock photo off of the internet with a group of people and they will advertise it as this is who we are. The sad reality is that what's on paper and who's in the picture doesn't necessarily translate to what the reality is. I mean, what I'm saying is that you will get there. And yes, there'll be all types of people, all types of individuals with different shades from uh, blacks and whites and Asians together in one space. But is that diversity? Has diversity just become who we can get in a room to sit down together without having them fight? Can we get blacks, whites, Asians, men, women, and children just to be able to sit down, listen to a speaker, and then all walk out of the room without even talking to each other? Has our definition of diversity been diminished to just what looks good on a photo or a brochure? And if that's the case, then our definition of diversity must change and adapt to the times that we are facing today. A definition that I found on the internet in regards to diversity says that it means understanding that each individual is unique and recognizing our individual differences. And these can be along the dimensions of race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, socioeconomic status, age, physical abilities, religious beliefs, political beliefs, or other ideologies. Inclusion is defined as a human right, a universal human right. And the aim of inclusion is to embrace all people, irrespective of race, gender, disability, medical, or other need. It is about giving equal access and opportunities and getting rid of discrimination and intolerance, which basically 
sums it up as removal of any barriers from someone being able to express themselves. If that's the case, then why does not only the SDA church, but other denominations continue to use the Bible to justify workplace discrimination and exploitation? Are we truly as diverse as we claim to be or aspire to be? Are we really creating the opportunities for all people created by God to be the best that they can be? See, the next time you look at a picture of blacks, whites, Asians, Native Americans, whomever together, we need to say, even though I see your faces, have I listened to your voices? And if I've listened to your voice, how have I tried to address your needs so that you can truly feel like you belong? Are we fair across the board? Are we holding our sisters to a higher standard than we are even holding our men to? Are we asking them to meet the same uh, criteria and the same deadlines and the same goals as our men are meeting, but we're not giving them equal status or the same title? So when we think about diversity, we think about inclusion. Are we really listening or are we just ignoring? Thank you for tuning in to Raise Your Voice podcast where we give individuals an opportunity to speak what's on their mind. Look forward to hearing your comments and your reviews. Please subscribe. It'll help us out. Have a great day. Bye-bye.